0: Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. In this week's programme, I talk with writer Mark O'Neill about three men from the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, or HSBC, who were not only instrumental in the fortunes of the bank, but Hong Kong as a whole. They are Sir Thomas Jackson, whose statue you can see next to the HSBC building. Sir Vandala Greyburn, who shows great bravery during the Japanese military occupation here, and Sir Arthur Morse, who's instrumental in getting Hong Kong back on its feet after the war. Mark O'Neill begins by telling me about Sir Thomas Jackson.
1: He was the chief manager of HSBC between 1876 and 1902, with some gaps in between. And it was during his time in office that HSBC became the most important bank in Asia. And now everybody in Hong Kong knows him because his statue looks over Statue Square and the bank site is just behind him. And that is where the bank headquarters that he built used to be. And now, of course, it's this very dramatic skyscraper that it is today, 180 meters tall. So let's speak about Sir Thomas Jackson's early life. He was born on June the 4th, 1841 in Caragallan, in County Leitrim, in the west of Ireland. He was the second of six sons of a Presbyterian farmer. The family then moved to Cregan, County Armagh, and he grew up in a house called Urca Lodge. Now, Cregan is very close to Crossmaglen. That was the capital of what we used to call Bandit Country in South Armagh, and I used to go there when I was a reporter there. And it was completely off limits to Protestants. They didn't dare to go there. And there was a big army base there with enormous walls and watchtowers. And the army soldiers who went on patrols, they would only go out in groups, heavily armed, and no shop in the town would dare to serve them. So if they went to buy a Coca-Cola or a bottle of beer or a cigarette packet, no luck. And, and
0: this is from what era?
1: This is from the Troubles era, because this area was controlled by the IRA. So this is very close to where Sir Thomas Daxon grew up. But
0: not in his era? Oh, no,
1: not at all at his time. But I'm just saying, when I was there and w- when we went to, to do interviews, it was quite tricky because, of course, you had to interview um, either somebody in the IRA, which is illegal. So you had to interview someone in Sinn Féin, who was the legal wing of the IRA. But, of course, the guy you were interviewing... <laughs> know if he was in the IRA and Sinn Féin or both or whatever. Anyway, so, uh, but that's in the modern era. But no, when he was there, it was a very peaceful, peaceful time.
0: If Sir Thomas Jackson is growing up in or born in 1841 in Ireland, is he a British family that has got land in Ireland? If you can just talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Well, of course, Ireland as an independent country didn't exist. All the citizens of the island of Ireland were citizens of the United Kingdom. So, yes, he was a a British citizen, and he was from a Presbyterian family, which means that his ancestors would have come to the north of Ireland in the early 1600s, and they were encouraged to go there by the British government, which couldn't control the Irish population. There was constant wars and rebellions, and Ulster, the northeastern part of Ireland, was the most rebellious. So what the British government has decided was we will confiscate the land of the Catholic Irish farmers and we will donate it to settlers that we are bringing in from England and Scotland, and many of them would be Presbyterian. So Sir Thomas Jackson's ancestors would be those people. You know, his family would have been there for 200 years by then.
0: So he's born in 1841. What makes Sir Thomas Jackson come to Hong Kong?
1: Like many Irish people who came to Hong Kong, or like me for that matter, there was a prospect of something here which we didn't have at home. So he was educated at a private boarding school near Dublin and with private tutors. 1860, he joined the Belfast branch of the Bank of Ireland. And 1864, just four years later, then he moves to Hong Kong. Well, obviously, he thought my prospects in the bank in Belfast are quite limited, but Hong Kong is a new frontier. So let's try. So he came here and he joined a bank called Agra and Masterman, and he worked there for 2 years and then he joined HSBC in 1866 that and was Was it always known as HSBC? Well of course it was its proper name is Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank that's what it was for most of my lifetime In more recent times, they decided to change the name, and I can give you the reason I think they changed the name. Well, it's not a very PC thing to say, but as you know, HSBC has greatly diversified in in recent years. It's bought banks in many different countries, and now it's a completely global bank. And so Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, of course, stresses its origins here and in Shanghai and in China, but they felt this was not appropriate when they were a bank headquartered in the UK with many operations in Europe, North America and so on. So they decided to shorten HSBC, which doesn't tell us where it came from.
0: So Thomas Jackson, so he comes over here at what, about age 22, 23? Yes, he comes to Hong Kong when
1: he's 23. He joins Hong Kong Bank when he's 25. He works as an accountant in the Shanghai branch. He opens a new branch of the bank in Hong Kong, 1868. 1870 to 1874, he is the manager of the branch in Yokohama, in Japan. So, a lot of experience, and how wise his bet was. He would never have these experiences if he was still in Northern Ireland. And then in 1876, at the age of 35, he becomes the chief manager of the bank. And he has a house for himself and his family built on the peak, which he calls Cregan, which is the name of his hometown in in Ulster. Now this was a very difficult moment for the bank because it had lost a great deal of money, it had reserves originally of 1 million Hong Kong dollars, but when he took over it was down to 100,000 because it had made uh, some bad investments, a rogue manager had invested in Spanish bonds and South American railways and lost a great little money. And the bank had to take the money out of its reserves to cover these losses. So he took over it at a difficult time. But he was able to bring the bank onto an even keel. And he began to expand. So 1877, we have the new branch in Singapore. And the Suez Canal had opened eight years before. And of course, that revolutionized trade in Asia because it made the journey between Europe and Asia so much quicker. In 1881 he opens a branch in Lyon in France, it's the first branch in France and Lyon is the biggest importer of raw Chinese silk in the world, so it's a very important centre for silk import.
0: Well, that's fascinating, so Lyon in France was bringing on, so how come it had become a raw silk importer? Well,
1: raw was a very desired product f- for the European upper-class royalty and ability, and Lyon is the second biggest city in France, so it's a logical place for it. And there was also a lot of silk trade between Vietnam and France, and HSBC had a branch in Saigon also. He then opens a branch in San Francisco, because of course there's now a big Chinese population, So Sir Thomas Jackson is permanently on the move? Well, I don't know if he personally is on the move, but his (laughs) eyes are on the move, his brain is on the move, and he's watching the way the world is developing and he's seizing the opportunities.
0: So, I mean, under his guidance, the bank is really expanding?
1: Oh, yes, and, of course, it's so much more difficult than now. I mean, now... As we look at our computer, we can follow everything in the world, we can get all the news in the world, we can communicate with everyone around the world. But, of course, in his time, this wasn't the case at all. So he had to make all these decisions based on quite limited information, hunches, predictions of what he thought would happen. So I think we have to admire his business acumen much more than it would be today, where you could have all the data in front of you and you then make the decision. But in his case, he has to base it on very limited information. He opens a bank branch in Bangkok, which is the first branch of any kind in Thailand. He issues the banknotes of Thailand, and the king becomes one of his first customers. So this is the evidence of his great ability to expand all around Asia. 1865, HSBC has started to issue banknotes in Hong Kong and China, and it's been doing so ever since. And this was really critical to the success of Hong Kong, because to have a successful business center, you have to have a currency that everyone accepts. And because HSBC did so well, there was no need for another currency. So then HSBC became like the Central Bank of Hong Kong, which it's been ever since. So HSBC becomes the bank of the Hong Kong government. It was also the bank for the British government, in its accounts in China, Japan, Penang and Singapore. It issued the first public loan for the government of China. This is the Qing government. And then it becomes a major banker to the Qing government. So it issues many loans for government, railways and other infrastructure projects because China itself doesn't have any modern banking system. It needs to raise money to buy rolling stock, build the lines, buy trains to run the lines buy people to design and run the lines. It needs foreign exchange for this, so that's what HSBC provides.
0: That's very interesting that there was that connection at that time.
1: Chinese industry was very backward. so for, for any modern industrial project, engineering project, you would need foreign materials and foreign expertise to build it.
0: And how did that relationship work? I mean, the Qing mandarins would go along to the bank and say, I need a loan, please.
1: Well, I think our friend Sir Robert Hart, whom we've spoken about before, I think played a very important role because he, of course, worked for the Qing government. He was the Inspector General of the Imperial Customs, and he was also from Northern Ireland. And, of course, he knew this world intimately. So I think he would have been a very important middleman between the two. So he's working in Beijing, he's meeting other officials of the Qing government, and he would know exactly what their requirements were. So he would then, not personally come to Hong Kong maybe, but he would send emissaries here and tell them what they wanted.
0: If you were giving a public loan to the Qing government, they would have to have certain collateral?
1: Ah, well this is where Sir Robert Hart is so important, because his customs department generated 15 to 26% of the revenue of the Qing government. And this was foreign exchange. So that was the money that paid back the loans.
0: So this would be other countries coming in, maritime powers who were coming into China would be paying, is that that how it worked? Yes. They would be paying customs charges, they'd have the foreign exchange, and that would provide the collateral for the public loan going to the Qing government. Yes. So
1: without Sir Robert's department,
0: without that income coming in,
1: these projects would not have been possible. So his department was really critical in the modernisation of China. I mean, it was really extraordinary. And, of course, the expat bankers, the British bankers, they trusted Hart because he was someone they could relate to and familiar with, and he understood the language they were talking about. But if they were speaking to a very traditional Mandarin in, in the Qing government. It would have to be an interpreter. Would the Qing official understand the terms they were using and what's collateral and repayment schedules and so forth? They didn't trust them. So it was very important for China to have an intermediary, like not just Sir Robert himself, but all the people who worked under him. and They were intermediary between China and the outside commercial financial world. So the HSBC not only issued money in Hong Kong, but it issued money in Singapore, Japan, Penang, Thailand and seven cities in China. So, I mean, it's really extraordinary. We're sitting in small little Hong Kong. But look at the impact this bank is having all over Asia. Now, one of the things Sir Thomas did when he was here was was to build a new headquarters at number one, Queens Road Central. And this is the first tailor-made headquarters. And the one we see today is exactly on the same site, except it's two on. So he built the first one, and then that was knocked down in 1935, and they built another one. And then that was knocked down and rebuilt but the place is exactly the same, which is why Sir Thomas' statue is where it is. So he's very close to where his headquarters is, so he would feel very much at home. So by the end of the 20th century, HSBC was the most important financial institution in Asia. It was operating in 16 countries, and it was financing trade across the world. It had branch networks, Singapore, Malaysia, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, and Indonesia. We should also speak a little about Sir Thomas personally. Now, many people who leave Ireland leave it forever. I mean, they turn their back on it. You know, it was poor, it was sectarian, I mean, for many reasons. They had bad experiences there. They, they don't want to return. But he was the opposite. Whenever he went back for leave, he would always visit Urca Lodge, where he grew up. And his sister lived there. And he paid for her, he paid for a companion to look after her and he would always leave a jug full of sovereigns behind, and she would then hand the sovereigns out to the poor and the needy people of Cregan, which I think is a very nice gesture by him, which he didn't need to do. So now he is actually remembered in a stained-glass window in the Cregan Anglican Church in memory of his charity for his hometown and the fact that he didn't forget it even though he was so far away.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Did he get married?
1: Yes, he got married. In 1902 he retired and he left Hong Kong and he bought 100 acres of land in Essex and he became Jackson of Stansted. You know Stansted Airport? That's the, that was the place. So he used to visit his hometown every year. The last visit was 1912 and it was December 21st, 1915. He was visiting an office of HSBC in Grace Church Street in London, and he suddenly passed away in the office. Perhaps it was a good place for him to pass away in one of his offices.
0: So that's the story of Sir Thomas Jackson, who was hugely influential in the in the development of HSBC. And it sounds as if he really could see where the bank needed to expand, where it needed to build new offices during that time. And of course, as you say, it's a time when transport was slow, letters were slow. You'd have heard the telegraph mm-hmm. towards the end of his Uh, or middle to end of his career. Communication was, of course, completely different. But for me, I actually think that's a little bit more romantic, this whole idea that he would have been steamship, I suppose, for for most of his career. Now, who else have you got that was of Irish stock, but working at HSBC?
1: Well, the second man we want to talk about is Sir Arthur Morse, and his profile is quite similar to that of Sir Thomas Jackson. He was born in April 1892 in County Tipperary, He was one of seven children of a man who was an agent of the Bank of Ireland. He grew up in County Galway and he was educated at Foyle College in Derry or Londonderry. Now, note that neither him nor Sir Thomas went to university. And I understand from my friends in the bank that at that time this was not a requirement. So Arthur Morse joins HSBC in 1912 when he's 20 years old and he arrives in Hong Kong in 1915. So he works in Tianjin and Shanghai, 1919 to 1929. He became chief accountant in 1932. Now, the chief manager of Hong Kong at that time is called Sir Vandela Greyburn, Sir Arthur's immediate superior. Greyburn himself was not Irish, but his parents were Irish. He grew up in uh, Yorkshire and also he came to Hong Kong at an early age. And he was also, like Sir Thomas and Sir Arthur, a very dominant figure. So one of the earliest projects which Sir Arthur had to do was to take responsibility for the new headquarters building in Hong Kong, 1935, and it was called the Greyburn Folly. Greyburn's Folly. (laughs) Because (laughs) Sir Van went to Palmer and Turner, you know, a very famous architectural firm, and said, spare no expense. You know, I want a building that tells the world that we are the biggest bank in Hong Kong and we're, you know, we're a major global bank. So this is an ideal project for any architectural company. So the building has 13 stories, 70 meters high, art deco style, granite facade. And Sir Arthur's job was responsible to get this building built. Vandela gave the order, but
0: the man actually in charge of the project was Sir Arthur. What I know about the 1935 building is I think it's the first building to have centralized air conditioning and uh, also had a, a beautiful mosaic on the ceiling.
1: Yes, I mean, this again tells us of the wisdom of the leaders because, of course, you're investing a lot of money in this building. But what you're getting for it is this prestige, the size, the the statement you're making, and it impresses everyone who looks at it, and it dominates central for the next 50 years. So actually, the return on investment is enormous. So it opened on October 10th, 1935, and it was a landmark for the next 50 years until the new one, which was built in 1985, which is the landmark today. So now we're approaching the war. So this is where both Zerasa and Savandelo have played a critical role, because of course China is already under attack by Japan. This poses enormous difficulties to HSBC because HSBC is a big funder to the Republic of China, just as it was before to the Qing government. It has many loans to the ROC government for its different projects, but it becomes clear that Japan is going to defeat China. So how does the bank place itself? Your bank headquarters in Hong Kong. Your assets are in Hong Kong. How do you prepare for a possible occupation by Japan? So 1940, Sir Arthur Morse is sent back to London. Sir Vandal of Greyburn remains here. But he moves the registration of the bank from here to London. So it's not anymore Hong Kong bank, it's a London bank. And Sir also moves a lot of the physical reserves, silver dollar reserves, he moves them from here to London. So when the Japanese arrive in Hong Kong and take it over, they find much less of an asset than they'd expected. They don't find the physical reserves they expected, and they can't take over the bank in the way that they'd expected to do. Now Morse is in London from 1940, and his job is to prepare for a takeover by Japan. So he is looking at all their assets in America. How does he prevent the U.S. government from freezing the assets in the event that Hong Kong is taken over by the Japanese? So this involves a lot of difficult legal work. But by the time the Japanese take over, he's done this. So the bank does not lose its assets in, in the United States. So on the 16th of December, that's just days after the Japanese attack on Hong Kong, Morse becomes the chief manager. He's based in London. Now most of the staff in East Asia, of course, was captured by the Japanese and was
0: interned. Savannah Grayburn worked from outside the internment camp, raising money for the internees to buy extra rations and medicine. He asked Dr. Harry Talbot to smuggle money back into the camp when the doctor was sent out of the camp for treatment at the French hospital, as it was known, which was St Paul's Hospital in Causeway Bay but the doctor was caught. Greyburn told the Japanese military that he was responsible for the smuggling operation. He was arrested with his assistant, Edward Streetfield. Greyburn was sentenced to three months in Stanley Prison. The American journalist Emily Hahn, who was also an internee, would later write that while Greyburn stayed in good health for the first half of his sentence, from mid-April 1943, his condition worsened, and she heard that he'd died of beriberi. Despite the efforts of the Indian warders, he was denied a doctor. Dr. Talbot, the last doctor to see him before his death, told the war crimes trial that Greyburn died of septicemia as there were no antibacterial drugs administered that could have saved him. This was reported in the China Mail. The war crimes trial in 1947 found Dr. Sato Chuichi the medical officer of the Stanley prison, guilty for Greyburn's death. And he was sentenced to eight years in prison. You can still see Sir Vandula Greyburn's grave at Stanley Cemetery.
1: So it was on August 21st, 1943, that Sir Vandeleur Greyburn passed away in Stanley Prison, and the same year Sir Arthur Morse is appointed the chairman and the chief manager of the bank to replace him. Now Morse was very pro-Hong Kong, so for him there was no question that as soon as the war ended he would come back and would rebuild Hong Kong. So, 1946, he comes back, he moves the headquarters back to Hong Kong. It resumes its role as the central bank of the colony. And he plays a critical role in the post-49 period. Because, as you know, there was this enormous exodus from the mainland. Hong Kong changes from being a trading commercial centre to being an industrial centre. So all these people came from Shanghai and other cities in China. These were people who were entrepreneurs, business people, factory owners in the mainland, but lost their assets because of the communist revolution. So they came here and they then want to resume their business operations here in Hong Kong. And, of course, finance is critical. You're trying to start from nothing. But these people didn't have collateral because their physical assets in the mainland had been confiscated. Now they might have gold, they might have precious items but they didn't have the normal collateral, the property collateral that a banker would demand. And this is where Morse was particularly good for Hong Kong because he was willing to make loans to these people, especially to those who were customers of the bank in the mainland and had no blemish to their credit record. And he was very aggressive in lending to them. What he said was, what is good for the colony is good for the bank. I mean, You'd expect him to say the reverse. You'd expect him to say, what's good for the bank? is good for the colony. But he said, no, what's good for the colony is good for the bank. So the bank played a very important role in 49, 50, early 50s, to get the economy going again and to finance the start of these major companies. I mean, another thing we should credit him for is during the wartime, of course, the Japanese occupied most of East Asia, the Germans occupied continental Europe. HSBC has assets in many places which are under occupation. So he succeeded in guarding the assets and the reserves of the bank. So when the war ends, the bank is in a good position to resume normal operations. And of course he could do that because he was in London, which was not occupied by the Nazis. The Hong Kong governor at the time, Alexander Grantham, who was governor of 47 to 57, praises Sir Arthur Morse very much. He said that in the post-war era, Hong Kong was fortunate to have people of the caliber of Morse to reconstruct the city. His guiding thought seemed to be what is good for the colony is good for the bank. He was a big Irishman with a booming voice and he looked like the popular conception of a capitalist in his well-fitting clothes and gold watch, albeit a benevolent one if somewhat autocratic. He was known as Uncle Arthur. Not only did he give much of his time to public affairs in the widest sense of the term, but by authorizing loans from the bank on almost no security, he saved more than one humble club from disaster. He left Hong Kong in 1953 and there was a big send-off. His car was pulled by a team of 15 of the bank staff through Central, the whole traffic was, was halted. He was taken to Queen's Pier.
0: Why did they, put what, they just pulled it with no engine running?
1: Yeah, because you know, if you just drive the car, it, it, it goes very quickly. So this is an important moment, so you want to mark the moment, so much more dramatic.
0: I a popular man, and also, as you say, it's a trust. You know, as you say, you had these business people coming down from Shanghai, but it was a leap of faith. And, and it's interesting, because you, as you say, when Sir Thomas Jackson, the bank that he inherits, in essence, mm. is one that uh, only has 100000 in the reserves because of ill-thought-out investment plans with South American railways, among others, here you have post-war... Sir Arthur Morse, who's saying, okay, I'm gonna do this leap of faith, but these people seem solid. They've got good business plans, or I think they'll, they'll make it happen.
1: Yeah, and, w- and they were good customers before. We have faith in the people, even if they don't have the fiscal assets to back it. And we also have to say, of course, that nobody knew what was gonna happen. I mean, the communists had captured the mainland. The communist army was at Shenzhen. Was it going to cross over? Was it going to, quote, liberate Hong Kong? Of course, many people in Hong Kong and in China, or Taiwan they were afraid they emigrated to America or Australia so you've got the additional element of political risk as well. But I think because Morse, just like Sir Thomas Jackson, they'd been in Hong Kong a long time. They, they had a very good understanding feeling for the place. They understood the complexities of the politics much better than people would if they were sitting in Europe or North America. They were obviously talking constantly to the Hong Kong government and had access to their intelligence. So yes, they believed this would be a good investment. And then I think like Sir Thomas Jackson, Morse was an audacious man, he was ready to take the risk and that was just what was required at that moment. So if I can just quote a little more from Sir Alexander Grantham, he said, next week there departs from the colony on retirement, the man who since liberation has probably done for Hong Kong more than any other single individual. He did things which from a purely banking point of view could hardly be justified, but which certainly from the point of view of the colony as a whole. So there you have the top man in Hong Kong praising him for what he's
0: done. My thanks to writer Mark O'Neill talking there on Sir Thomas Jackson, Sir Vandela Grayburn, and Sir Arthur Morse of HSBC. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.